GM, everybody, welcome to Lawline with Carlo and Jenko. No Jenko today. Jenko is out, but I'm holding down the fort. Let me do the disclaimer, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Welcome to everyone who joined. If you wouldn't mind, please retweeting. Let's fill up the space. So, welcome to Lawline with Carlo and Jenko, brought to you in conjunction with Rug Radio, where we talk about new and emerging trends, legal developments in Web3 and blockchain law. We do it every Tuesday through Friday, 1230 Eastern. Nothing we talk about should be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, you should consult a lawyer who is licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction, and you should do it privately, not on a recorded Twitter space. All that being said, I understand we've got several new and aspiring blockchain lawyers in the space who passed the bar today. So congratulations to all of you. If any of you are in the house, we'd love to bring you up to speak so you can introduce yourself to the community. We could talk about where you studied, where you're licensed, and what your plans are going forward. I'd be very, very happy to talk with you. So by all means, happy to invite you up if you want to, and we can talk. Also, I pinned a recent development out of the Southern District of Florida. This is a federal case that went to a plea hearing. And I think it's an important case to talk about because it reinforces the necessity to comply with tax laws when it comes to declaring your cryptocurrency transactions. The defendant in this case was indicted for failing to disclose and pay taxes on proceeds gained from cryptocurrency. Those cryptocurrency proceeds were derived from a dark web scheme that involved stealing user identification information. And as very typical, the defendant tried to conceal the source of that money by using mixers and tumblers to try and off-ramp that money in a way that the defendant believed would not be detected by the government. And unfortunately for that defendant, and uh, very, very common, uh, the defendant used poor judgment here and thought he could get ahead of the government and their ability to detect, track down, and <laughs> find that money. I guess is the, is the long way I'm getting here. Find that money. So according to the charging document in that case, the defendant pled guilty to an information, which is a way of avoiding being formally indicted. It's typically the way that defendants who uh, want to try to resolve their case short of it going to grand jury up to resolve the case so it doesn't need to go to grand jury for a vote. According to the charging document in that case, the government charged the defendant attempted to evade and defeat a large part of the income tax due and owing by him to the United States of America for the 2015 tax year. So that shows you back how far they're going to go and look by preparing and causing to be prepared and by signing and causing to be signed a false and fraudulent U.S. tax return, a 1040 form on behalf of himself, which was filed with the IRS. So here you have a case where the tax return was filed, but there were apparently false declarations. Defendant did not report $181,993 in taxable income for the 2015 tax year resulting in a loss, in a tax loss of $40,846. The defendant, according to the government's allegations, knew the correct taxable amount for the tax year and was substantially more than uh, should have been reported, failed to report it, and is owed to the United States. So lots of people in the space. Well, I'm bringing up Carlos. Now everyone's going to be confused because it's Carlos and Carlo in the house. Let me put a pause there and welcome Carlos up. Thank you for throwing me a lifeline, my man. You know how much I just love to hear myself talk. No, no, absolutely. We, we all love to hear ourselves talk. Uh, it's probably even more confusing because it cuts off the S in Carlo, but 
Um, Carlo, you always know that uh, whenever I get identified as Carlo D'Angelo, I'm I'm very happy to say that yes, I am Carlo D'Angelo. Please follow me follow me as a DeFi defense lawyer. This is just my new handle, my burner account. It's really helped out uh, gain a, a big following, brother. So good stuff. <laughs> I'm thrilled that I can I, I'm thrilled that I can help build your brain. Thank you, my man. How are Absolutely. you? Absolutely, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, man, there's so much stuff going on now. Uh, just across the web three landscape it's uh it's kind of crazy i i I was just reading through um through your post and i i think um you know there's there's uh this is part of the reason that um we're definitely going to keep criminal defense in the portfolio because i think as we see time go on there's going to be more and more prosecutions like this and um and it just you know there's and and Carlo, please tell me if you if you agree with this or not. This is just sort of anecdotal, but typically with these, at least in my experience, with these federal investigations, whenever there's federal charges, there's been there's been quite a bit more surveillance and and due diligence on the part of the government uh, as opposed to some of the state cases that we see. So these are, I think, going to be a little trickier to um, to try to defend and get out of. Uh, so I, do, do you kind of see it like that also, that it's just the amount of evidence that comes forward in these federal indictments is generally a lot, uh, it's a, a lot more, but a lot better uh, usually than, than some of the state level stuff that we see? Yeah, look, it's, it's no secret that the feds have enormous resources at their disposal. And if you look in this press release itself and you look at the number of agencies that were coordinated in working on this particular investigation, there's no question. They bring very, very solid cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution. They have time on their hands. They have resources on their hands. They have a tremendous amount of manpower, human power, I should say, to go after these cases. And yes, they tend to be much more thorough than the state side. The state side tends to be a little bit more limited and more complex cases tend to go federal. So I agree with that. And I agree with your assessment that this is going to be trending upward, I think, in our space. Yeah. And, what, you know, one thing I've, I've been um, that I, I need to get back into, we had talked about this a while back, but um, you, so the, the business judgment rule, a lot of people know it from the civil context um, you know, sort of protecting principles from liability. Uh, I just, I wonder if that comes into play in a criminal context um, and how that'll work out as time goes on. Uh, because I, I, you know, there, again, there, this isn't one of those things like, you know, when we practice uh, what I, I guess I'll call classical uh, criminal defense law, it's very intuitive to know that if you punch somebody, if you, if you stab somebody, there's, there's assault that attaches. It just, it's innate. You you realize it. But with a lot of these projects right now, um, especially given the demographic that's engaging in the business, um, I don't think they're doing a lot of these things unwittingly. Um, now look, this is an outlier, obviously from knowingly not paying taxes, but I, I do think when it comes to um, you know potential fraud, uh, Carlo, as you know, here in Texas we have some deceptive trade practices stuff, um, and, and there's there's criminal liability that can attach in some of those cases. But I, I really I'm curious to see what happens with that because there that may potentially be invoked as a, a defense. But if anybody has any better input on that, I'd, I'd love to hear it because I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in that. And Dory, welcome up. Yeah, welcome, Dory. Thank you so welcome much. Thank you, thank you. Really enjoyed your space yesterday as well, Carlos. So um, thanks so much for the opportunity to participate today. I am, Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm injecting my... Um, my two cents, if you will, from the perspective of being a former litigator in New England, New York City, and Philadelphia, who focused on commercial litigation, turned artist, and most recently NFT artist. So I'm wearing a couple of different hats, I guess you would say, as I'm up here. Um, I wanted to thank you for bringing the above case to all of our attention. One of the things that during a you know peripheral review 
seems to be um, jumping out at me isn't just the fact that these were um, this was income as a result of cryptocurrency earnings, but the um, sort of the underlying nature of the transactions that generated the income in the first instance, uh, the dark web, um, hacked accounts, um, you know, fraudulent, it appears, um, user IDs and passwords. So I'm, I'm making the distinction, and this, this is from someone who has no criminal defense background whatsoever. Um, I'm sort of, of making the inference from, from what I have read that those underlying activities sort of, um, you know, make this even more interesting at a federal investigatory level, as opposed to someone who may not have realized, or it was more of like, um, as opposed to, a, you know, malicious actions, where it seems to be in this instance, um, where there were, um, you know, there was a, a lack of disclosure based on lack of knowledge, you know, negligence, that sort of a thing. And so I was wondering if if that was something that that you noted as well, or if I'm just going from, I'm taking too much of that leap from, from lawyer to artist here. <laughs> no, no, no. It's an excellent observation because you would think when you read stuff like, you know, fraudulent identification and buying identities on the dark web, that there could have been a broader criminal prosecution here for wire fraud, for illegal access to electronic uh, computer devices. And you, what you sometimes can read into stuff like this is that because it was filed by way of an information as opposed to a grand jury indictment, this may have been something that was that was a preemptive move to plea to an isolated offense in order to avoid a more broader prosecution for broader federal crimes. But going back to your original point, you're right. This one has more of a of a of a illicit as opposed to innocent taxpayer angle to it because of the allegations that someone was buying and selling stolen identities from music download websites and porn websites. They were stealing user IDs and passwords and they were selling them on the dark web in exchange for cryptocurrency. And then they were trying to off ramp that cryptocurrency, I guess, into fiat in a way that they believe was going to be beyond detection and that they wouldn't have to declare that income. So I think going forward, the government's made it very clear that they expect people to declare their cryptocurrency transactions. And I don't think they'll be sympathetic to I didn't know any better because the tax forms now have it plainly noted. And there was a box last year that needed to be checked if people had transacted in cryptocurrency. And I think that was the wake up call to everyone. So I, I hope that I kind of answered that. I think I think they might be more amenable to negotiating with people that make an honest mistake that maybe don't declare everything or maybe are incomplete. They're, they're, they certainly, I don't think, would resort to immediate criminal prosecution. They would want to resolve it, settle it, payment, interest, penalties, and so forth. But in this one, this was probably really egregious, and, and they chose this one to make an example of just for the very reasons you talked about. So, I mean, I think... I think that's an excellent observation, Dory. Did, did I answer that? Um, you did, and then some. I really appreciate it, Carlos. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you on, and uh, you're welcome to join us anytime. You know, Carlos, you were talking about whether these projects, you know, could have any sort of protection under the fact that, that maybe perhaps we're dealing uh, in, a, in a business with, 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 without full understanding of the implications of what they're doing. I think it sort of ties into the same response I gave to Dory, and of course, no, this is legal advice, but I think generally speaking, we've had enough time to, to catch up here and learn what's expected. And I don't think that investigators and regulators are going to look favorably on the, I didn't know any better defense. Um, and generally speaking, especially when it comes to tax violations, I think most tax lawyers and most CPAs would probably advise that when you do discover the problem, it's probably best to be forthright about it and deal with it as opposed to waiting for them to find you. I know that's a, probably a controversial take, but it is probably better in certain circumstances to be more 
uh, assertive and more uh, proactive, I should say, in trying to amend returns and correct things as opposed to sitting back and waiting for them to find it, which could probably be looked at as more favorable down the road with respect to how they may treat you. That's a decision you have to make, of course, with consulting a lawyer and a tax specialist for your own individual you know, circumstances. But that's generally been my understanding from people in the industry. You disagree with any of that, Carlos? No, I, I, I agree with it. I think, um, you know, at a very practical level and, and, you know, I really, really want to say that this is not legal advice, uh, because this is just my, uh, assessment of things. And I'm painting with a really broad brush here, but I think an attempt at compliance in a lot of circumstances results in, you know, some civil proceedings, maybe some fines and liens, something like that. And that could be the differentiator, uh, you know, between having to deal with a civil case and a criminal case. So, you know, I think it's important to keep that in mind. I, it, but you're right, you know, especially, um, you know, a lot of us are out here advising projects post-launch, um, you know, post-potential violations. Uh, a lot of this is going to be, you know, in the securities context. And it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable gray area in some respects to... Um, to really advise clients on things that, you know, the, the SEC has come out and made affirmative statements about not having a safe harbor, not having amnesty. Um, for all intents and purposes, uh, my uh, take on it from, from Mr. Gensler is that uh, there's going to be sort of this no mercy, uh, uh, you know, um, position taken by the SEC. But, um, you know, you always want to be be in compliance. So how do you navigate that? Um, you know, and, and it would be great to always get the client pre-launch uh, before they do anything, before they accept any money from anyone. And you can talk about things like, uh, you know, no action letters from the SEC, uh, maybe changing the underlying mechanics of how a project works. Um, but that's just not the reality now. So I've, uh, you know, I can say in my own personal experience, it's a very, um, uh, complex place to advise because you don't want to put your client in jeopardy. And, and, you know, you, our job in a lot of respects is to allocate risk. Um, and I, I don't know if you kind of see it the same way, Carlo, and, and if anybody else here has, has advised on some of these issues, I'd definitely love to hear your input, but, um, it, it's a, uh, a weird space to be advising in. Um, Dory, did you do any like securities litigation or anything like that when you were practicing? Um, I didn't. I actually was um, un involved almost predominantly in um, reinsurance litigation and arbitration. So mm. it was 95% of it was in a private arbitration setting with industry panel experts and um, industry custom and practice, um, determining most of the time um, the outcome of any given dispute. Um, I did want to piggyback on something that you said that actually ties in nicely to the conversation I enjoyed yesterday on um, Lawline when Zeneca was speaking. And and this is just how I've approached Web3. I think I'm in my eighth month, have one collection I've already sold out, and I'm about to introduce another. And what I have done, I have my own lawyer, though. I have an IP lawyer because it's not my domain. And one of the things that I've, I've just sort of undertaken, not just in Web3, but as an artist and as a business person, is always erring on the side of, of safety and over-disclosure if there is any gray area in terms of whether or not something should or should not be reported. So um, I have not dealt with that in this context that we're dealing with today, nor, you know, as... <laughs> No one's mistaken me for Kim Kardashian promoting a certain type of cryptocurrency either. But um, but just in terms of of thinking about the smart contracts and the extent to which licensing um, rights are are um, passed along, you know, I'm just assuming that nothing is a given, that everything needs to be set forth very straightforwardly. So um, 
So, so my obviously long-winded answer is that I was not involved in securities litigation. <laughs> no, no, that was good. <laughs> very wise that you sought out the advice of counsel and you did not try to get out of your lane and try to practice and advise yourself on something you don't really have a lot of experience in. Shekinah, you're in the house. You got your hand up. Shekinah is one of our Web3 legends in the law space. Welcome. Hey, what's up? Um, no, I was reading this pen tweet that you had, you know, and I mean, I'm not giving legal advice. I'm not giving I'm not giving any type of advice, but in analyzing it, I mean, the the defendant, the red flag was the dark web marketplaces, you know, like because it just seems from from reading like what you've written, because um, I, I mean, I think I've said it before, like I used to work in investigations at a um at a, a cryptocurrency exchange. So I know how this would have been flagged and how it would have been reported <laughs> to the Department of Treasury <clears throat> because I used to do that um, up until earlier this year. I, I was I was doing that before I decided to be a full-time lawyer. Um, and and so, yeah, like, do you, I mean, yeah, if I, the word of caution would be like dark neck, messy with dark neck. And, and thinking that you can take it through mixers and then, you know, to clean it and, and off ramp, you know, to an actual exchange. Like, no, like the the government, the gov governments worldwide, you know, have tools where they can see it very, very clearly. And I was and as I was reading, like, yeah, just like your pin tweet and the thread, you know, Carlo, I could in my mind, I was doing like the connecting and I'm like. It would have been so clearly, so easily, so easily seen, you know, what this person, you know, like was was doing. So, yeah. Just... Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction, too, to make in this conversation, because, you know, we got the tax deadline coming up. October was the extension time for people to file who took an extension. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if a great many people in crypto took the extension because they just didn't know how to handle declaring their crypto on their tax return. But, you know, time is coming up. The deadline is approaching. So you've got two different categories, and I think you nailed it. You've got the category of people that are not involved in illicit activity that may be invested in crypto and not sure how to declare it, maybe fail to adequately declare it. That's where they need to talk to tax professionals and tax lawyers to get in compliance if they can, if that's in their best interest. Again, like you said, Shekinah, not legal advice, just speaking in very broad terms. You got to go to the experts in the field. You got to talk to the people who understand this stuff and can adequately advise you on the consequences of failing to disclose in the first place, the options available going forward, either to come forward and remedy that disclosure issue or if there are going to be other consequences like criminal consequences, obviously you got to talk about the fifth amendment aspects of this and incriminating yourself. These are all things you got to consult with a lawyer about. And then you have the other silo, which is the person who's involved in illicit activity like this case. And they can't very well come forward and declare, or I guess they can, they could technically do like a fifth amendment sort of a, a tax return, which I've heard is a, is an option. But of course, not many people transacting on the dark web in illegal business activities are, are going to be coming forward and paying their fair share. So the challenge in crypto is for these people, how do they take cryptocurrency, which is not universally recognized as a currency, and how do they bridge that into fiat that they can then spend to pay their bills? And that's, like you said, where they get flagged and they get caught. And that's where the whole thing unravels. We brought up, uh, I'm going to bring up JB. Welcome you to the stage as well. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone who's tuning in today. Sorry that Jenko couldn't be here today, but sometimes you know how it is in real life, you know, tends to run the show. What's good? Yeah, we, we're we're going to have to sue Ray uh, for not attending today. So I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and jazz up that lawsuit. Um, I no, do have a no, quick... he's he's good because I can't attend tomorrow, so he's covering me tomorrow. So don't don't go. Hey, looks like it's going to be two lawsuits then, Carlo. Um, no, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, Shekinah, I am I am curious um, about your take uh, and if you had any experience with this when you were at uh, Department of Treasury 
Um, Ash shared a really good podcast a, a while back, and I, I really didn't understand um, how complex the whole tornado cash issue was uh, when OFAC came out and, and sort of slapped them. And um, did w- what's your take on the tornado cash issue with uh, you know with OFAC and and the fact that tornado ca- cash is, was really just a, a smart contract and what the implications are there. Is, is that anything that you touched or dealt with, or do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, no, I do. And I just want to give a correction. Like I didn't work um, for the department of treasury, but I worked at an exchange. I worked at Bitrix, um, which has been around since 2014, cryptocurrency exchange based in the U S. And I, so I worked for them and a lot of, and we always, I mean, yeah, like all of your centralized exchanges are talking with their local governments or federal governments. Um, and, and also with international governments as well. So, so that's what I meant. So I would, I would I'd do the investigation and then create the report and then send that report to the Department of Treasury for them to, maybe they would do an investigation, maybe they wouldn't, but we would do our due diligence and sending, and sending them that information. Um, my thoughts on it was, I don't know, like I, I'm, I mean, this is gonna sound really weird and maybe it's the lawyer in me, I am, I'm always, I've never worked in, I mean, as a lawyer, I've never worked in blockchain crime, but I do follow it. Um, I kind of love it. I, I, I want, I, I, hey, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm pro the, the government going after the bad guys or anyone that's doing anything illicit with, um, with crypto because I've, I've, I've seen how it works. I've seen that it is a thing. It's not as big as they may make it seem but it does exist and, and, and there is a lot of money involved. Um, but yeah, my take on it was like, what took them so long? You know, I, I and, and maybe it was Russia, you know, is, is what did it. But the government, like, if you've worked for an exchange in the compliance department, you've known about Tornado Cash and all the other mixers. Like, we get trained on it. When, we are, when we're using different tools from whether it's TRM Labs or CypherTrace or, you know, Chainalysis, just all those blockchain investigations, you know, like tools, like they're all built and geared, you know, to, to flag all different types of mixers, all the different types of darknet marketplaces, you know, and, and, and so like, I, I wonder, my take on it was, why why now like why did you do this now because you've known about all the dark mar- dark net marketplaces and and tor- and all the other tornado caches including tornado cash you know for for years why are you why did you suddenly move like why did you choose now that would be the thing that sticks out to me because they've known and they've been going after you know different um illicit organizations and individuals doing all types of illicit activity, you know, with different mixers, including Tornado Cash. So that was that was the thing for me. I'm like, yeah, okay, I knew you could do that, but like, why did why did you go? Why did you make this huge announcement now? Why did you decide to make this so broad? So that was my take on it. You know, that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to bring you up, JB. I did not forget about you, but that is a great question. I think. If I had to, from the perspective of someone who spends a lot of time talking about blockchain crime, I think globally there is an intensified movement right now to really come down on regulating this space. And Tornado Cash is low-hanging fruit because, as you described it, it is a well-known service that people use, both, you know, in fairness, both for good and illicit reasons, because there are people who want to remain anonymous for different reasons and want their wallets, just like their bank accounts, they don't want their bank accounts to be public-facing. They don't want their wallets to be public-facing, so they use these services to try and obfuscate their identity for for, for safety reasons. So there are good, legitimate uses. There are also nefarious uses. Yeah, I wanted to add one more thing, too, just to the the good uses part. It's also, you know, like, folks, I mean, it's not, if, if if I were born in Iran or Iran, it wouldn't be my fault that I was born in that country and I wasn't doing anything illicit, but I wanted to participate, you know, and, 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 you know, as an entrepreneur and this, and I have to use a mixer because of economic sanctions and whatever other country you want to add on to that list. 
So I think those are other reasons why people may use. Well, I know for a fact that's so that's for other because I I had a case that was one of my last cases that I dealt with. You know, someone living an Iran an Iranian living in Turkey, but operating like but they had a business in Iran, and one moment just yeah transferred a whole bunch of money through a mixer directly you know to an exchange. Um, and, and I don't think that person was doing anything illicit. I just think, yeah, they just happened to have a business in their home country, but they were living in Turkey because yeah, Turkey is more free, but yeah. So it's, I, I think that's some of the reasons why people may use mixers too, because it's economic you got one of the founders sitting in jail, still not, uh, to my understanding, still not formally charged and they're initiating asset, uh, forfeiture proceedings against that founder overseas. Uh, OFAC obviously is, is one of those government entities that's really ramping up enforcement. You're right. We have a climate now where sanctions are top of the list and dealing with sanctioned nations is definitely very taboo and you need to proceed with extreme caution. So the technology, Tornado Cash as code is certainly something that is protected speech as many have advocated and has good uses but when it's used for illicit purposes it gets in the crosshairs of investigators and uh i guess the timing has a lot to do with the russia sanctions i would venture to guess jb welcome what's good welcome to lawline thank you for joining the conversation Absolutely. Thank you for having me up. I, uh, I am not as licensed attorney yet. I am in the process of getting all that. Uh, this whole thing with Web3 um, NFTs has given me motivation to go back to college and I'm going to go get my law degree now. Um, so it's, it's wild that, it's, that we're in this crazy space. But I did want to mention just two things in regard to um, what you had posted about um, the case up there with Florida. I feel like that case, like and, and I'm not a practicing attorney, so I could be totally wrong, but I feel like that was something done to protect them from something else that was definitely going to be harder on them in, in all reality. That's what it looks like to me, just from an outside perspective. Um, I could be wrong, but that that's just a personal opinion. Like I said, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but, I, but I do also think that in um, regard to the timing, it's very interesting. Um, I know that I know that anytime you see cases like this, it's Federal investigators, they they usually have Loctite cases um, as far as versus state cases um, in regards to what you said earlier. And so I feel like this was something that they're they're either honestly, it's like they're working with somebody to, to help another case or they're just doing it to because this was a lesser charge, like or they got some sort of immunity out of it. Like that's the only thing I really see that they would do this for. Um, but. Also, in another opinion, like on something totally separate, uh, whenever you look at any sort of cryptocurrencies or any digital assets, I think that one thing that we can all agree on is like one of the one of the things that I have found interesting is that in 2018, there was a crypto uh, currency that came out um, and it was uh, in Venezuela. And no, it was March 19, 2018. I think it was called Petro Gold. And. Uh, that's when like there was actually a thing with OFAC and uh, the treasury and they actually said that it was considered a digital currency a digital coin and I mean I know that that's like total separate different areas but it's important that date because that's actually like the first well for me at least I could be wrong so if I'm not right please correct me but that's like an actual statement that they came out and said on that day and so just in regard to like all these digital coins and digital currencies and all that crazy stuff like whenever you are doing anything illicit obviously like not good but one thing I think that protects anybody in these spaces is just knowing what OFAC is and if you can if you can follow those laws that are around that that's like a worldly thing then I think that everybody's protected like you're gonna be okay so I don't know just opinion, like I said but... no JB um I can't speak to the to the Venezuelan currency, but I can speak to your first comments and your first opinions. Um, you may not have a legal diploma, but your instincts are spot on. We can't know 
with any certainty the specific details of why this case was was resolved the way it was. But you're certainly right in your analysis that some of the reasons that cases get resolved like this is because uh, you want to avoid indictment. The difference between what was filed in this case and what typically happens in criminal cases is typically criminal cases get presented to a grand jury in a secret proceeding by the prosecutor. The defense doesn't have access to the proceedings unless the defendant wants to testify and give up their right to remain silent. But the grand jury meets in secret. The agents and the prosecutor present the case and they get an indictment. Now, in this case, there could be several things because you look at the transactions they allege were back in 2015. Depending upon the appropriate statute of limitations for prosecuting these crimes, there may have been some time limitations with respect to when the government discovered this stuff and how far back they could reach to prosecute the actual fraud aspects of this. So there's one theory. It could have been the tax, the tax charge was, was within the statute of limitations, which is much more far-reaching, and that was reason. Or it could have been cooperation. That could have led to a compromise on a lesser charge. This is totally speculation. I'm speaking 100% generally of how it works in federal court. Or there's an agreement to avoid going to grand jury and plead to an information because there's going to be certain incentives for a defendant to face more, uh, more palatable, more acceptable sentencing guidelines. So any one of those factors could have played into this, but we'll never know because confidentiality is paramount when it comes to cooperation and when it comes to the internal dynamics of how criminal cases are worked out if people are allegedly cooperating. So you're spot on. Um, Carlos, you were talking a little bit about uh, projects and you, you mentioned securities. You know, there's a different there's a different line of reasoning, I think, that, that, that gets into play when you cross between tax compliance and registering as a security. And I think, again, not legal advice and definitely need to seek out appropriate legal advice if you are a project and you're worried about whether your project is a security. But. I think it's fair to say that many in the space have been largely waiting to find out what the SEC is going to come down on as far as whether they are going to be empowered by Congress to enforce securities regulations over NFTs. And projects probably have a reluctance to want to go forward and file and attempt to come into compliance Although Mr. Ginsler is inviting them to come in and do just that, for whatever reason, projects may have a reluctance to do that, and they may be instead taking the approach of wait and see. Whether that backfires for those projects, like you had suggested, is, is hard to say. I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, you bring up a good point. Look, there there is a distinction, I think, between um, SEC regulatory issues and and tax payment um ta I, I think tax payment a lot of people would agree that that's more um understood by just the general public you got to pay your taxes um but we've had uh, e even in our internal group uh we've had a lot of debate about what would constitute a security um given the two nine 2019 sec guidance um some of the the limited number of cases that we have to go off of um, and I, I guess my point there is really just that if, if we as attorneys are debating this and, and saying, okay, well, you know, maybe this is a security or, or maybe it's not, and, and we can have perfectly valid substantive reasons, um, and arguments for both sides, then, then surely, uh, you know, expecting somebody who doesn't do this stuff on a daily basis, uh, to understand it is, is, I mean, it's a big ask. You know, it's it's again, it's not one of those things that's um, super clear cut and black and white. And I think probably the best analogy that I've heard for all of this was in um, I think it was in like January. Uh, Brian Brooks, uh, former comptroller of the currency, also an attorney, um, gave some congressional testimony and, and said um, and, and 
please go listen to him say it because I'm going to probably put it very inartfully. But in a nutshell, he said, look, uh, this is what we're dealing with in, in terms of securities regulation for digital assets right now. If instead of having uh, like a posted speed limit, um, we just said, okay, uh, officer, what you're going to do is make an assessment to, to see whether there was unsafe driving going on and you're going to take into consideration uh, you know, how fast the car was going, um, how close was it to the, the car in front of it, uh, had the person had a, a sufficient number of hours of sleep the night before, uh, did they have alcohol? And so you create this really great area subjective test that depending on who picks it up, uh, they may see it very differently from one another. So, um, I, and and that's what my concern is, frankly, for the 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 security space is what what is that going to look like, um, you know, in the, in the next six twelve months? Um, JB, what's up? Just a just in regard to what you just said, um, it's it's interesting. Like I love I love everything that's going on right now, and the fact that that you guys are up here and doing these spaces. I appreciate it so much. Everybody really needs to know because right now is the time when things are going to literally come into fruition as far as laws and regulations go. Um, with that in mind, like, and when you guys were talking about what the SEC has done lately and what they're going to consider doing as far as all the regulations that are about to be proposed, um, I think that it's important to remember that there are things when you go back and you look and you look at the laws, um, like I said, I'm not an attorney, but I do a lot of research. Um, and it's, and it's interesting when you, when you look at things and as far as I tweeted, um, I think a couple weeks ago, just about what my personal opinion was. And like I said, I'm not a lawyer, but it like things that, that are happening, like somebody that is doing um, like Gensler um, for say what he's doing with the SEC in my personal opinion, I feel like that if they were to come out and make re regulations regarding um, cryptocurrency as a security, I feel like he could possibly be charged um, by the Department of Justice with insider trading because I don't feel like you should be able to write any regulation when you have a an asset possibly that that, that regulates around. Um, and so, I mean, I literally tweeted out to the Department of Justice, Congress, and I mean, I kind of went wild with it. But that's just because when you read all these different areas of the law and you're going through them note by note by note you know like all the different a whatever b subsection c you could literally see that how it would apply to him so just as, as far as that stuff goes um i think that we're in a new time i believe i also believe that securities as far as like bitcoin ethereum like i said i'm not a lawyer this is not financial advice um, everybody needs to go do their own research. You need to get in a lawyer if you're going to do anything business related. But but when you're talking about cryptocurrencies and securities, um, one thing I feel that is a question, and maybe I just get you guys on some uh, think status, is whenever I can go pay for McDonald's with Walmart uh, Wal Walmart assets, then, then you can call me uh, a security. Does it make sense? Because right now I can go with my Coinbase card I can go to McDonald's and I can go pay in Bitcoin for my cheeseburger. So when I can go pay with Walmart uh, that I have, like if I'm a investor in Walmart, whenever I can go to McDonald's and pay for my burger with my Walmart, like my Walmart investment, then I feel then we're on the same page. But until then, we're totally it's totally different areas. So just just a thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah look, uh, uh, sorry, Carlos. Uh, no, go ahead, Carlo. Go ahead. Yeah. Look, uh, you, you know, it's. You you definitely are entitled to have your opinions, and you definitely are entitled to voice those opinions. And uh, we would never stand in the way of anyone's free speech rights. But I don't think that Ginsler, in my assessment, is is in is in the line of sights for anything like that. I'm not a securities lawyer, but I would venture to guess that someone who is as knowledgeable, who has taught at MIT who has a very, very nuanced understanding of this technology and of the securities laws would certainly know how to comply with the proper disclosures for anything that he is invested in. I'm sure the SEC has a line and a litany of, of disclosure requirements and abstaining from certain things. Um, if these are declared securities, his public speaking and his policy comments on the subject are probably also insulated and in furtherance of his role in that capacity as the chair. 
So I, I don't necessarily see that as being anything on the horizon that would be coming. However, one thing that is a little bit ambiguous right now is could the SEC prospectively go back and institute enforcement actions against projects if there is an affirmative finding that these things are, are security? Could they go back and trading and for failing to properly register? I think that's open for debate and certainly something that a lot of people in the space are looking at and waiting for that first case to come down once the bill is passed on what crosses the line between a security and a commodity and a piece of art. Am I fair in that assessment, Shekinah? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'd say yeah, no. I mean, it's just, it, it's, yeah. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, perfect, like uh, perfect lawyer answer. We're, we're a very non-committal bunch uh, up here. Um, but, you know, here, this is, this is the, um, so these, these are the, the key things that I'm looking at, um, especially in the criminal law context. Uh, and Carlo, you, you know this. I think that anything that comes down in terms of criminal liabilities, there's going to be a pretty good ex post facto argument. So I, I think um, that, you know, I, I, I feel a lot more comfortable dealing with the criminal aspect of this if there is any to come down exactly, we'll, we'll right. see if that it's happens exactly it, it's the civil liabilities that attach um and jb definitely look there is not a monopoly on knowledge uh and i i run into this uh thankfully we have a really good group of attorneys and and those of us that have been friends for a while where you know we understand that we're all in, in learning phase so don't ever feel like uh you can't express your opinion because surely uh, we all put on our pants the same way in the morning, so um, don't don't be bashful about sharing what you think. I think all people should, um, and and that's really important to remember. But um, back to you know the SEC, I, you know, it's it's really hard to understand where uh, Ginsler is coming from on a lot of these things because, like Carlos said, I mean he Gary Ginsler teaches the course that taught me my foundational blockchain knowledge. It's open source co courseware uh, from MIT. And so I think he has a pretty deep understanding of things. And there's um, the, the, I think a lot of the confusion comes in because you have something and maybe under a very, very strict interpretation, very classic view of the Howey test it would be a security, but it also does something. It provides some utility. It's it's a, a, a network that allows people to transact. And I think um, that is where a lot of the confusion comes into play um, because it, it's just a little bit, it requires a little bit more analysis than the, uh, you know, sort of the common sense questions like, am I enticing you to give me money and promising you a, a return passively. And then we have this term active investor or excuse me, active participant. And, and that term in itself, I think is where the meat of the litigation that will occur um, is going to lie because where, you know, what, what does it mean? How much activity do you have to put forth? How much effort is it? And yes, we do look at essential managerial efforts, but um, I bet if you ask 10 attorneys, you could probably get 10 different answers on what essential managerial efforts are. Um, and, you know, truth be told, for a lot of us, uh, it depends on the clients that we're representing. And then we craft an argument within the bounds of morals and ethics about why something will or will not apply. Um, so, look, we, and, and we create gray areas as attorneys also. So it's just... I think um, these conversations, yes, will we get better guidance? Will we get uh, more precise regulation? Probably, but a lot of these arguments we'll still probably be having because we're all going to, you know, advise parties on both sides of the coin. So um, it's it's good to just kind of take an open-minded view of it. Try to read the tea leaves 
and see why people are doing things, what's their motivation behind it. My guess is that you know maybe it has something to do with the the relevance of the um, you know the SEC and and what they're going to regulate, what they can regulate. Um, I think that you know it, it, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Also, if you look at the uh, uh, the Loomis Gillibrand bill, um, you know, my mind it just kind of it wasn't as profound as as a lot of people made it out to be. It said, okay, you know, digital assets are commodities, but um, if it's a security, it's still a security. So I, you know, as time goes on, we'll get more and more guidance, but I'm sure that a lot of us are going to be fighting the good fight for both sides um, and, and taking some positions that, that definitely differ from one another. And that's an okay thing, by the way. Um, so yeah, yeah, just uh, my long-winded two cents. No, a great observation. And, you know, this has been a great conversation today. I think you're spot on. I don't think anyone can deny that Gary Gensler has a very deep understanding of blockchain technology. And I would never, I would never suppose that I know it better than he does for sure, because he's taught this at a very high level. And he's very careful when he speaks publicly to always reinforce that what he's saying publicly is not the stated position of the SEC. But he has a very firm opinion. He's made it very clear that with the exception of Bitcoin, he believes that the vast majority of these cryptocurrency assets are securities and should be subject to regulation and that the intermediaries who handle them should also be subject to regulation. Like you said, Carlos, when the law finally comes down and better defines who has jurisdiction over these things and under what context they should be considered securities, there are going to be enforcement actions that will be brought, and there's going to be attorneys involved on both sides who will be arguing both sides. And, and that's how this industry and that's how this space evolves, because until we have that regulatory clarity, we're going to continue to, to, to travel in this ambiguous area where, just like you started the conversation, people don't know what to do and how to handle their respective projects and their respective crypto asset holdings. So that clarity is necessary. It's necessary for the growth of this industry, and it's necessary for the growth of this uh, booming sector. And like I've said in the past, Carlos, and I know you agree with this, we don't want to lose this technology and have it go overseas. We don't want the talent and the people building in this space to go overseas because the regulation is just too ambiguous or too extreme that it forces away innovation. So great conversation. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. Thank you to everyone who came up and spoke. Give a follow to the lawyers up here and be back at it tomorrow. You're going to get to hear from the great Jenko tomorrow. I'll be out, but Jenko will hold down the house, and I'm sure it'll be a great conversation. As always, thank you for joining us, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend it with us. Thank you, Carlos.